0: Thanks, Emory. And good morning, Life Church. Glad that you're with us this morning. It's good to see each of you today. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here. And uh, it's my joy to open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today. And so if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do. I would love it if you'd turn to Colossians 1. I'm going to be looking at verses 24 to 29 this morning in our time together, and I think you'll be served well if you have a Bible in front of you while we do that. Um, In life, uh, the maturing process is one that is both necessary and painful. I want you to think for a minute about over the last few years of your life, the way that you have grown up, the ways in which the Lord has moved you along, ushered you along, shepherded you along into maturity. I want you to think about the people that God has used to do that, the situations and circumstances that God has placed you in for the specific purpose of growing you into maturity. Most of us, like if we're able to be honest and open with ourselves, like when we look back on our lives we recognize that that process of growing us up into maturity, it's both necessary and painful. That's certainly been true for me in my life. As a young man, um, I was one of those guys who was always convinced that I knew more than anybody else did. I was convinced that I was right, and if anybody told me something that sort of contradicted what I already believed, I just assumed that they were wrong and I was right and that they just had not yet learned everything that I already knew, right? And so even like when I was five years old, if my mother said something to me like, don't touch the stove, it's hot, like I just assumed that that meant she had yet to figure out the correct way to touch the stove without hurting yourself. And it was only after like multiple second degree burns that I would finally concede the fact that no, there isn't a way to safely touch a hot stove without getting burned, The same thing is true of spiritual growth, too. Right, as I look back on my life, right, the process of growing, it's always been necessary, and it's always been painful. Right, I can look back on a few people that the Lord has used to really advance my maturity. I can look at a few situations and circumstances that the Lord placed me in. In the conversations, they were hard, Sometimes the circumstances were really painful, but God, he used those things to grow me in necessary ways. Spiritual growth, both necessary and painful. According to the Bible, the mission of the church, it's not simply to like, see people get saved. Right, the reason we're here today and the reason we exist in this city, in this county, at this point in history, right, we're not here simply to see people sign on the dotted line, right? Our goal, our ambition, our mission is not merely to see people convert to know and love and follow Jesus, right? Conversion, that moment when we recognize our sinfulness, when we repent of our sin and we profess faith in Christ, the moment when our hearts are reborn by the Holy Spirit, right? That's not the goal of the church. That's not the mission of the church. The church's mission involves that, but it does not end with that. No, according to the Bible, the mission of the church is to see people growing into maturity, all people. Right In our passage today, which is really kind of marching orders for pastors and marching orders for churches, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul says that everything he did in his life and in his ministry, like all of Paul's missionary journeys, all of his church planting work, all of his preaching, all of his teaching, all of his pastoring, and including all of the suffering that he endured, all of it had one point, This is it. This is how he puts it in Colossians 1.28. He says, him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why did he do that? Here's the answer. That we might present everyone mature in Christ. That we might present everyone mature in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul says that he poured his life out on the, so that on the last day, right, when he stood before the throne of glory next to the people that he had pastored, Paul could say, look, Lord, they are mature. I want us to look carefully at this passage together this morning. In a minute, I'll read it for us and I'll pray. But I want to unpack in this passage the different forces in and through Paul's life and ministry that worked together to present the Colossians and us mature in Christ. In other words, I wanna ask of this passage, how does God grow and mature his people? Let's read and then I'll pray and then we'll seek to answer that question. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. within me. Father, help us to have ears that are hearing and eyes that are seeing as we come to your word and sit under it this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. According to Paul here, how does God grow his people? Well, the first thing that we see in this passage is that God uses suffering to mature his people. Look at verse 24 at how the Apostle Paul speaks about his own life here, and especially his own suffering for the sake of the gospel. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. He rejoices in his sufferings. Why would Paul say that? How could he say that he rejoices in his sufferings? Well, there are actually two reasons according to verse 24. First, Paul rejoices in his sufferings because they are for your sake, he says to the Colossians. Paul rejoices in his suffering because according to God's mysterious purposes and in his mysterious providences, Paul knows that his own suffering serves the maturity of the Colossians. It helps the Colossians grow. And I think you can even say that Paul expands that idea to the entire church worldwide at all times, so including us, when he adds at the end of the verse that he suffers for the sake of Christ's body that is the church. And so, Paul's suffering as a minister of the gospel, helped advance the message of the gospel, and put on display the power of the gospel. And so, Paul's suffering has served us. That leads Paul to rejoice. But Paul actually says more than that here. He gets specific and explicit about how his suffering served the church and matured God's people. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and, listen to this carefully, he says, and in my flesh, his body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says in his sufferings, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What could that possibly mean? Well, let's start with what it does not mean, right? It does not mean that according to the apostle Paul, the affliction of Christ, and that means the cross of Christ, it does not mean that the cross of Christ was in any way insufficient to save you or me. We can be sure that that's true because the New Testament tells us that that's true. For example, this is what Hebrews 10 says. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so Christ, he made his sacrifice, he suffered his affliction, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit? Well, because his saving work was complete. There was nothing more that needed to be done and nothing more that he could possibly do having suffered and been afflicted for us. Hebrews adds, by that single offering, his death on the cross, Christ has perfected his people for all time. And so there was no saving work left to be done when Christ was finished with his cross. But still, Paul says, there was something lacking in that work, something that his own suffering in his own flesh filled up. What could Paul possibly mean when he says that his own suffering filled up what was lacking in the affliction of Christ. Well, I think there's a clue in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul is talking about the ministry of a man named Epaphroditus... The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul when Paul was in a Roman prison. And in the process of journeying to Paul and staying with Paul and ministering to Paul, Epaphroditus had had taken ill and he had actually almost died. But, But then he recovered, and after he recovered, Paul was sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. And this is what he writes to the Philippians at the end of Philippians 2 about Epaphroditus, who's going back to visit them. He says... Receive him, receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, and listen to this, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You hear it? Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now in the Greek, like you can line up the end of Philippians 2 and the end of Colossians 1, And the language is like identical there. When Paul says that he completes or fills up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, he's using the same words that he uses here when he talks about Epaphroditus risking his life to come to Paul and to minister to Paul. So, what does that tell us? Well, the Philippian church, they love the Apostle Paul, right? There was no doubting that. But before Epaphroditus came to Paul, Their love was distant, it was unseen, it was unfelt. However, then Epaphroditus arrived and he became the present, visible, flesh and blood embodiment of their love and service to Paul. He filled up what was lacking in their love and service to Paul because they were not physically present with Paul, but he was. He brought the Philippians' love and service to Paul in such a way that that love and service became real. The Philippians' service and love, they became a personal flesh and blood reality because Epaphroditus came and loved and served Paul in personal flesh and blood ways. In Colossians, Paul is saying essentially the same thing about his suffering for the Colossian Christians. It fills up what is lacking in Christ's affliction because before Paul suffered, the suffering of Christ was was something that the Colossians understood, but it's not something they felt It was something that they knew, but not something that was real to them. And it was only when Christ suffered physically in his flesh that the suffering of Christ in his flesh became a real embodied reality to the Colossian Christians. In other words, Paul's suffering, it helped the Colossians to understand, to feel, to grasp, to lay hold of the suffering of Christ for them. And so Paul's suffering, it, it served and advanced the maturity of the Colossian church. And as we look at church history, like God has continued to work that way in the history of the church. Again and again and again, what the church father Tertullian said has proven true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, when Christ's people suffer for Christ, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, and the result of that is the maturity of more and more and more of Christ's people. One writer tells the story, the true story, of a Maasai warrior named Joseph. In Joseph's story, it just powerfully illustrates how the affliction of God's people can advance the maturity of God's people. Joseph one day walking on a hot, dirty African road, where He came to know the Lord. He met somebody who, who shared the gospel with him, and in a moment, Joseph was converted to faith in the gospel. Like, he understood his sinfulness. He understood his need for a Savior. He delighted at the good news that God offers His forgiveness freely to those who trust in Him through saving faith, and he turned to Christ. His life was turned upside down and he thought, man, I need to go back and tell everybody that I know about this good news that I've heard. And so Joseph, he returned to the village he had grown up in, the village he lived in his entire life, and he went from door to door to door telling everyone that he could find about the good news of what God has done for sinners through Jesus. And he assumed everyone would receive that news just as he had, but instead, the people not only dismissed him, they became violent. The men of the village grabbed Joseph and held him down, while the women of the village whipped Joseph and beat Joseph with barbed wire, right? And then after they had just beat him bloody, they threw him out of the village and just left him to die. But the Lord sustained Joseph. He managed somehow like, to crawl to a water hole, a place where there was water, and after days of passing in and out of consciousness, like he found the strength to get up. And he was confused by the hostile reception that he had received from the people that he had known his entire life, and he assumed that the problem was he had somehow gotten the news of what God has done for us through Jesus wrong. Right? He he, he was convinced that somehow he just gotten the story incorrect, and so he rehearsed it again and again and again. Right? Through Jesus, God saved sinners, and he went back to his village. And went from house to house again, pleading with people to trust in Christ. And again, the people responded the same way. The men grabbed him, the women beat him, and left him for dead. Now, to have survived the first beating, it was truly remarkable. To have survived the second was a miracle. But again, Joseph, he awoke days later, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to his small hometown, and this time the people, they didn't even wait for him to start talking, right? They attacked him the moment that they saw him. And as they flogged him for the third time, surely the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ. Before he passed out, the last thing that he witnessed was the women who were beating him beginning to weep. And this time when Joseph awoke, he awoke in his own bed And many of the people who had so severely beaten him, they were now ministering to him, trying to save his life, nursing him back to health, because the entire village had come to know and trust in Christ. A message of Christ's affliction that the people of this village held at arm's length suddenly became a message that they received because Joseph suffered for them. He filled up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. Church, God is so committed to the maturity of His people that He uses even the suffering, even the affliction, even the pain of His people to bring about the maturity of His people. Perhaps right now, He's using pain in your life to mature you. Perhaps right now he's using pain in your life to mature others. Perhaps he's called you to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction so that he might one day receive others, mature in Christ through your suffering. according to this passage, the second way that God matures his people Is simply through the ministry of his word there's a lot that i could say here i'm not going to say everything that i could say but i want you to look at verse 25 again these are marching orders for pastors and marching orders for churches paul says i became a minister according to the stewardship from god that was given to me for you what was his main goal to make the word of god fully known that the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Paul's ministry, in other words, it was not all about Paul's ideas. His ministry was not about how clever he was or how helpful his advice was. Paul's ministry was not all about how wise or profound Paul could be. Paul's ministry was about one thing and one thing only, making the Word of God fully known. Now, why was Paul so committed to making the Word of God fully known? It's simple. Why was he willing to suffer and to endure persecution so that all people could hear all of God's Word in Scripture? Well, it's because there simply is no Christian maturity apart from a deep understanding of God's Word. There's no completeness apart from a deep understanding of God's Word. So many of us like we're content with little bite-sized nuggets of Scripture. But Paul, he wanted all people to feast on Scripture because he knew that Scripture was key to growth and maturity in God's people. I wonder if you've believed that and given your life to that reality. We come into the world broken because of sin there's something wrong with us, right? We don't think, right? We aren't capable of understanding ourselves, of understanding God, of understanding what's wrong with the world or how to be happy and content. We fail to grasp what's really wrong with us. We're messed up in our heads. That's what sin has done to each and every one of us. It's distorted and broken, even the way that we think. Which means that if we are to grow in Christ and to become mature in Christ, then we actually have to give ourselves to a lifelong deconstruction of the way that we naturally think about everything. And we need the Bible to make that happen. We need the Bible to deconstruct what we naturally think and to reconstruct our thinking in a way that is right and true. Picture in your mind for a moment a building that has been constructed by untrained construction workers, right? Nothing in the building is up to code. The materials are shoddy. The craftsmanship is worse. And as a result, everything is a mess, right? The floor isn't level. The doors are hung wrong. The windows are crooked. On top of that, the colors all clash and like the design aesthetic is just bad. Everything in this building is a mess. Well, according to the Bible, that is us, right? Apart from the Bible, that is you and me. Our lives are like a building project that has just been thrown together by people who didn't know better and who didn't care to do things right in the first place. But the Bible, it is the all-in-one, universal industrial strength tool by which the divine architect tears down that shoddy construction and rebuilds us the way that we ought to be. We tend to think that life is all about us and that we're here on this earth to make a name for ourselves. The Bible deconstructs that lie and it replaces it with the knowledge that we are here for the glory and the renown of the creator and redeemer of the universe. We tend to think that God will accept us if we're basically decent people, right? As long as we're better than our pagan neighbors, God will think that we're okay. But the Bible, it deconstructs that lie, and it insists that God accepts us despite our best moral efforts, not because of them. We tend to think that we're small and insignificant and not worth much in the grand scheme, but the Bible deconstructs that lie, and it tells us that we're made in the image of God. If we are Christians, the Bible tells us that we're adopted into the family of God, not because we earned or deserved that privilege, but because God is gracious, and he set his eternal affection upon us. We tend to think that created things, things like Food and sex and money and trips to Disney are going to satisfy our souls, but the Bible knocks down those lies and teaches us that gifts can never satisfy. Only the giver can, and so on and so on and so on. The Bible, it educates us. It corrects us. It replaces natural folly with divine wisdom. It speaks life into dead sinners and there is no hope of maturity without it. So I ask you again today, I wonder if you've really given your life to that reality. I mean, imagine for a minute that you discovered buried in your backyard all the treasures of some bygone age, right? Buried in your backyard are riches beyond comprehension. You do some research, you learn that according to the laws in your town, right, everything that you find in your backyard belongs to you. Now, would you, knowing that true riches beyond description are yours if you dig them up, would you respond by saying, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I'm sorry, I don't know how to dig that up right, any excuse that you'd offer, right, you'd find a way to, to pierce through that excuse, right, if you were convinced that true riches beyond your imagination were in your backyard, you would find the time, you would find the tools, if you needed to sell everything that you owned in order to buy that piece of land so that the riches were right and truly yours, right, you would do that, you would do anything necessary to lay your hands on those riches, Brothers and sisters, the Bible, it's the very words of very God himself. It dismantles every lie that this world will tell us, and it tells us the truth. So the bottom line here is is simply, like, how desperate are you to get rich with true riches? There is no maturity apart from God's word. The third and final thing that Paul says here about how we mature is that God empowers the labors of his people to mature his people. We see that especially in verse 29. Look, Paul says, for this I toil. And this, in the context here, it means the maturity of God's people, presenting everyone mature in Christ. Paul is toiling for that. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, there are several remarkable things in this verse. The rough edges that are here in Greek, they get smoothed down by every English translation of the New Testament, but what Paul says in this verse in Greek is really kind of graphic and brutal. Like for example, the Greek word for toil, what my translation says is toil, like it was used for labor that left one so weary and so exhausted it was like you had taken a beating. Right? It denotes labor that is to the point of exhaustion. And so maybe picture a boxer who's just been hit, hit by jab after jab after jab, uppercut after uppercut after uppercut for 10 solid rounds. He's managed to stay on his feet the whole time, but that final bell rings and he's like hanging against the ropes and he's bloody and beaten and he can barely stand. that final bell rings and he collapses to the ground, bloody and exhausted. That's the kind of toil that Paul describes here. Somehow he uses the word for struggling in Greek that's actually even more graphic. It's the same Greek word from which we get our word, agony. And so Paul is saying here that he toils and agonizes over the maturity of God's people. That is incredible, but I want you to notice something else that's critical in verse 29. Paul doesn't toil and agonize with his own energy. He toils and agonizes with Christ's energy, that Christ Powerfully works within him. For this I toil, struggling with all, not with all my energy, but with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so Paul is describing himself as pouring himself out for the maturity of Christ's people, but he's acknowledging that God supplies the very energy that Paul is pouring out. It's God's own energy by which Paul toils and struggles to present us mature in Christ. And Christian, I can tell you that the same energy, the same empowering presence of the Lord, the same ministry of the Holy Spirit is available to you as you pursue your own maturity and as you pursue the maturity of others. Right, pursuing Christian maturity as hard and necessary as it is, as toilsome and agonizing as it is. Right, It always resembles a sailboat more than a rowboat. Right, In a rowboat, the rower provides the energy. The boat goes no farther than his sweat and his toil will get him, but in a sailboat, it is the wind that provides the energy. Now the sailor, he still must sweat and toil, right, he must raise the sail and trim a jib or whatever, right, like, but his efforts, they do not propel the ship forward. That is the job of the wind. Christian, as you strive for maturity, as you labor and toil in the painful but necessary process of growth, raise your sails, right, give yourself to the ministry of God's word, immerse yourself the life and the rhythms of your church, walk in dependence on God in prayer and in real fellowship with other Christians. By doing these things, you will raise the sails that will catch the wind that is God's power powerfully working within you. Now, there are some wonderful truths that we have like considered together in this passage this morning, but if you're with us week after week here at Life Church, I think you're probably wondering like why are we talking about this right now? Right? Why do we jump in here right in the middle of the book of Colossians to look at these things together today? Well, we're talking about these things together today because we recognize that this is the time of year when a lot of our ministry effort and activity comes back online as people return to school and you know, settle down from like, a lot of summer vacation and travel and that kind of thing. And so we wanted to just take a Sunday to kind of lay before everyone why we do what we do as a church. And we wanted to, in the process, invite you to take a step forward into what we do as a church. I'll tell you that our ministries here at Life Church they have one aim and one goal. Right? We strive and toil like the apostle Paul to present everyone mature in Christ. Right? The purpose behind all that we do as a church is to present you mature in Christ. That is our mission together. But we also acknowledge that that is a mission that takes time, right? No one arrives at maturity overnight. So we're all in this process of growing mature in Christ, and that's a lifelong process for each and every one of us. It's a process that takes time and, and patience, a process that takes trial, toil. Yet that doesn't mean that we can't take meaningful steps forward into maturity now. And that's something that each of us should be doing. And so this morning, I just want to kind of lay before you the three key steps that we hope and pray everyone who calls Life Church home will take as we pursue maturity together. We sum up those three key steps with three key statements here at Life Church Treasure Christ, grow together, and live on mission. Treasure Christ, we believe that one key commitment that everyone who is on the path to maturity will take is the commitment to treasure Christ above all things. Now at Life Church, the primary context where we try to like see that commitment played out is, is right here in our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings which should be good news for you, right? If you're within the sound of my voice this morning, that means that you're probably already making a commitment to gather with God's people, to worship God regularly, and in the process to treasure Christ above all things. When we gather for corporate worship, right, we're declaring to God and to one another and to ourselves that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. And so we don't come in here to lift up our preferences. We don't come in here to exalt our comfort. We don't come in here to lift up the things that our hearts desire apart from Christ. No, we come in here to declare to God and to one another and to ourselves that Jesus is more valuable than anything else we could possibly lay our hands on. Our highest aim in the 75 minutes or so that you are in this room with us week after week after week is to shape our hearts so that they treasure Christ more. Our desire is that we would increasingly treasure Christ above all things. That's what we hope and pray is accomplished in this space together. And we would say that that commitment, right, taking the step to gather with God's people regularly to worship him, is one key foundational commitment of somebody who is growing in maturity. I'll put that a different way, maybe a harsher way. If you're not making the commitment to gather with God's people to worship Him regularly, you probably aren't, you certainly aren't becoming more mature in Christ. That just isn't something that happens apart from what the Lord does through spaces like this one. The second commitment that we talk about here at Life Church is this the commitment to grow together. I think of this as the second step on the path to maturity. The first step, gathering with God's people to worship him and to treasure all Christ above all things together. The second step is the step the commitment to grow together. Here at Life Church the primary place this happens is in life groups. Life groups are the place where people in our church, they gather together in smaller group community to encourage one another and to pray for one another, to study God's word together, to hold one another accountable, to care for one another. Right? They are a place where Christ is proclaimed and where his word is made fully known. But even more significantly, they're a place of connection where believers can practically invest in one another and embrace the reality that we belong Together. Here at Life Church we believe that groups are an essential step on the path toward becoming mature in Christ. If you're in a group already, I hope and pray that you realize that you need that group. Right? Your group, it pushes you toward maturity in ways that you expect and in ways that you don't expect. But right? if you aren't in a group today, I want to encourage you just to pray today about stepping into a group this fall as our groups come back online for the fall season, you were not made to grow alone. You were made to grow with others. We were made to grow together. It's a critical commitment that we would make as God's people. And then the third commitment we would make as we walk this path toward maturity is the commitment to live on mission. This is the most diverse step in this pathway and what I mean by that is that there are many many ways that we all can take the step to commit to living on mission. You might live on mission by agreeing to serve on a ministry team here. For example, you might take a step to agree to serve um, among our disciple makers and life kids. Every Sunday morning a substantial percentage of our church, well north of 100 children under the age of 11 are gathering through that wall together with adults who are investing in them, caring for them, ministering to them, and serving them. But here's the key to that. right? Those adults who are caring and investing and serving, right? they're not just pouring themselves out into the lives of these children and their families. They're also receiving from the ministry of the word that the Lord is allowing them to be a part of. Because nobody who serves others fails to grow in the process. And if you aren't serving others, then you are failing to grow. Right? You were not made to be a cul-de-sac of God's grace. You were made to be a conduit of God's grace. Right? You weren't supposed to be this place where God's grace stops and it doesn't go anywhere else. You're supposed to be this vessel through whom God's grace flows into the lives of other people. And it's only when you take that step that you will truly grow and truly be moved toward maturity in Christ. You might live on mission, not just by serving on a ministry team here, you might live on mission by serving one of our global partners in ministry. Some of them are local, some of them are global. You could serve at Rowan Helping Ministries, at Life Choices Rowan, at Main Street Mission in China Grove, There are many local ministries that we happily invest in You could live on mission by serving in one of those. You could live on mission by partnering with one of our global church planting partners, Redeemer Fellowship in Kuwait City, Kuwait, City Church in Lagos, Nigeria. Right, you could give and pray and invest yourself in the growth of those churches. You could live on mission simply by endeavoring to be a good neighbor, right, to love your neighbor well to open your home and to open your life to lost coworkers, to lost neighbors, to lost family members, to invite them into relationship with you that might ultimately serve to introduce them to the gospel. But the truth is we will never become mature unless we give, unless we lay down our lives for other people and live on mission for the sake of other people. We're not called to be cul-de-sacs, we're called to be conduits. This is what we do here at Life Church. Everything that we do is either some part of calling people to treasure Christ, or to grow together, or to live on mission. And we're relentlessly committed to not doing anything that doesn't help us do one of those three things. But as we wrap up this morning, I wanna take just an extra moment to to tell you about something that we're launching today that's really designed to help you take a step into that pathway toward maturity. Right, later today at about three o'clock, if you're on our email list, you're gonna receive a survey from us. By the way, if you're not on our email list, you can fill out your connection card today and we'll get you added to that email list before the survey launches today at 3 p.m. But 3 p.m. today, this survey is gonna land in your email inbox like if you're not an email person, there's gonna be a QR code that you can scan with your phone. You'll find it in the lobby on your way out. You can also go to lifechurchnc.com survey. If you're not interested in any of those things, there are a few old school paper copies that you can pick up in the lobby on your way out. But we want everyone here at Life.Church to participate in this survey some way, somehow. Let me take a minute just to make a few comments about this thing. First of all, the survey is short, and it is so easy right we designed this so that it would not take you a year to complete it just a few minutes is all that we're really asking of you as that survey comes to you today number 2 we really hope and pray that every family unit here at life church will complete this survey right and so like if husband and wife aren't super good at communication like, before you leave this place today, right, like, get on the same page about who it is that's gonna to respond to this survey on behalf of your family. If you're here and you're flying solo, that makes it easy, right? It's you that's responsible for filling out this survey. But we want everyone here to participate in this and to complete this. Here's what I really mean. The survey isn't for other people, it's for you. If you're sitting here thinking, man, I wonder who in here is gonna to respond to this survey? Like, the answer is, it better be you, right? Because it's for you, it's for you all of us, not just for other people. Here's the third thing. This survey is not anonymous. In other words, we're not just trying to get your opinion. This isn't like a focus group where we're just trying to figure out what people think and how people are behaving. We're trying to genuinely understand where you are at. And so we need to know who you are as you complete the survey. Now on that note, in case you're like super like afraid to fill out a survey that's not anonymous, Man, I promise we're not gonna spam you in response to this thing, right? This is not some like bait-and-switch marketing scheme where we're just trying to get your information so we can suddenly like, sell you a whole bunch of stuff. We probably will follow up with you in some way on this survey, but that follow-up, it will be personal, and it will not be annoying. Like I promise you that. That's my commitment to you. And then the last thing. I really hope that you will think about poor Pastor James, as you complete this survey. What I I mean is, like, like think about my self-esteem as you fill out this survey, right? I've stood up here, I've spent five minutes talking about this thing, I've looked you in the eye, and I've begged you to complete this survey. What am I going to conclude about our relationship with one another if you don't do it? Think about me, lying in bed tonight wondering, man, like I looked Brittany in the eye, why didn't Brittany complete the survey? Does Brittany think I'm a jerk? Does she just completely hate me? Because that is what I will conclude if you don't do it. And so seriously, we are trying to shepherd you. We are trying to care for you. This survey is gonna help us do that. It's gonna help us help you. So help us help you by completing the survey. It'll take just a few moments, I promise. Church, we're doing this because we love you. I'm asking you to do this because regularly, like the, I, I wake up at night thinking about the day when I'm gonna stand before the throne of the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. Right? I think it regularly about the day when I'm gonna stand before him. And the Bible tells me, Hebrews 13, 17 tells me that on the day that I stand before Jesus Christ, I'm gonna give an account, not just for the life that I have lived, I'm gonna give an account for the way that I have pastored you. In other words, the Lord is gonna hold me accountable for whether or not I have presented you mature in Christ. I want you to have that same vision in your mind and your heart. I want you to be preparing yourself for that day, preparing yourself to be presented mature in Christ. That's what we're striving for together and praying for together and laboring for together. We celebrate the fact that the power of God is available to us, and that it's his energy with which we toil and struggle as we pursue that together. But I hope that you'll think about that day with me and that today, to prepare for that day, you'll consider taking a step toward deeper maturity so that we're ready together to stand before our Lord. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, we thank you for saving immature people. But we thank you for not leaving us in our immaturity. The gospel is free, Jesus. We praise you for that. We praise you for the fact that you save broken, messy, weak, sinful, immature people. But we praise you also for the fact that you don't leave us there but rather you transform us from one degree of glory to another into your image. We praise you for the fact that you've promised to finish that work. It's not something you're gonna get halfway through and abandon. It's something that you're going to complete. But we also recognize that we have a responsibility to you and to one another, to labor and toil and struggle together with your power working within us so that we can present one another mature before you. Make us faithful in that work, Lord. Make us fruitful in that work. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.